Good morning, Taft Avenue. It is so wonderful to be here with y'all this morning. Um, if you heard last week, we learned a new song, and so we're going to review that song, um, putting your memories to the test this Sunday morning. But we're going to sing it. We're going to sing the chorus a couple times, and then we're going to sing the whole song together, okay? Let's stand on up, let's stand to our feet, and let's sing out this morning. So the chorus goes like this. I'll take you at your word. If you said it, I'll believe it. I've seen how good it works. If you start it, you'll complete it. I'll take you at your word. If you said it, I'll believe it. I've seen how good it works. If you start Let's sing that whole song together now. Your love will never give up 
Good morning, Taft. My name is Michelle Tierney, and I'm going to be reading Hebrews 9, 11 through 22. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not, meant by, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. But if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where, for, for where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now, and Lord, we praise you for the words of the scripture, and that without your blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. It is direct, it is clear, and we praise you for giving us your son. Lord, we thank you for this time that we can come together, that we can worship you, and that we can praise you. We commit this time to you in your name. Amen. Amen. Let's continue singing.
This morning, we're going to continue worshiping. This next song is Christ Be Magnified. Let's sing that out this morning. He is so much greater and so much stronger and so much more powerful than we can even recognize. We've been redeemed by the blood of our Savior, and sometimes we don't even understand the magnitude of that. So as we continue in worshiping, let's lift our voices, let's lift our praises, let's continue to lift our God up high so that he is more and we are less this morning. Let's sing. Of my life, rise. 
stand strong and worship you and if it puts me in the fire i'll rejoice because you're there too i won't be formed by feelings i hold fast to what is true and if the cross brings transformation i'll be crucified with you because death is this morning as we worship you together we magnify your name Lord we magnify your name Lord and we pray that in return you would be magnified in us Lord that you would be greater that we would become more like you so I pray this morning um, as we grow to know you more as we grow more more in love with you Lord I pray that we would be magnified we would be magnifying glasses of who you are. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for this time of worship. Amen. Taft, it is now time to greet a neighbor. So find someone and say hello. good to see everybody this morning. If you have your Bibles, let's open up to 
Hebrews chapter 9 as we continue our journey through the book of Hebrews. Nine chapters into Hebrews. We've learned a lot. We've been confused by a lot. Hopefully there's been some clarity, but this wonderful book that has sustained the church for so many centuries is also now uh, finding a way to sustain us in, uh, in our lives today. And so we want to find our, our place in this book, and today we're in chapter 9. And as we enter into this chapter, um, I wonder if you've ever considered the amount of things you use every day but have no idea how they work. It's not, it's not that there's some great unsolved mystery to the world. Someone knows how they work, but you don't. But you use it every day. So I'm going to go first. At the risk of exposing myself and my ignorance in the world to all of you, this, just consider this a massive self-report of my ignorance, okay? But let's see. I don't know how many of you can relate, okay? So at, at this risk, let me, let me just say some things I use every day, but I have absolutely no idea how they work. First thing, my phone. All I know is how to turn it on and go like this, right? That's all I know. I have no idea how it works. I don't know if there's like little people inside that are doing things that are responding. I don't know. I don't know how the touch screen works. I don't know. Somebody does. Somebody made it? I have no idea. Okay, that's my first self Anybody? All right, all right, I appreciate you. Okay, also, my computer, right? I turn my, I know how to flip it open. I know how to hit, put my fingerprint on the thing that says, hey, I'm who I am, and it turns on my computer. Anyone else? Your computer, no idea how it works. So now, but at the same time, some people might understand a little bit more out there about how this works. Maybe the electrical engineers are in here saying, hey, dummy, I'll tell you how it works and the whole thing. Okay, I have a friend who's an electrical engineer, and he lets me know why there's multiples of whatever it is that you can do bits and bytes and all that. Okay, another thing that I, I use every day, they have a very limited knowledge of how it works. I might even think I have knowledge of how it works, but I really don't, and that is my car. I don't, look, I don't know. All I know is I turn the key or hit the button. I don't know what you use these days. And it turns on, or whether it's electric or whether it's gas. I know the difference between those two things. All right, everybody. But um, I do know that it, when I run out of gas, I need to put gas in it. I also have seen gasoline in my lifetime, but I know if there's a day that I actually visually see gasoline, it's a bad day for me. Anybody else? All right, there you go. Okay, good. I just know, I, I know enough to know what's good and bad. I don't know how it works. Again, those of you who know how cars work, are like, hey, step it up, Pastor Craig. But again, this is my self-report. I also know, and I use it almost every day, uh, my TV, right? Anybody else? No idea how it works, but you use it every day. All I know is the remote control turns it on and off. I don't know how those images magically get in there, what kind of magic that is, okay? But that's one, another thing. I will also say this, um, the internet, I don't know how I can text a message on WhatsApp, and it would get in seconds, less than a second, to my friend in Turkey, Ozon. I can text him, and in a second it gets there, and all of that is because of the interweb. 
No joke, no laughing on the interwebs. Okay, all right, you get the idea. Okay, here's my last one. Here's my last one. And again, ignorance, this is my self-report. I have no idea how, and I use it daily, a trip there every week. I have no idea how the Costco supply chain works. <laughs> but I love it. I love it. I have, I, have a certain, I have a certain sauce that I really like at Costco. I'm not going to say what it is because um, we have to bleep it out, right? Okay, but um, it, anyway, you might know, but um, I use I have no idea how they make it. I have no idea how they make the plastic container that it gets in there. I use it every day, but, and, and how it gets to me, how it begins and gets into Costco, how I buy it, I have no idea how that works. All right, anybody else? Things you use every day, that's fine, okay? I don't know how these things work. I know they do work. And I use them on a daily basis. Now, today we come to something like that. When it comes to our salvation, when it comes to coming before God, when it comes to prayer, when it comes to our assurance of standing before God, when it comes to sins and the death of Jesus, you or even I might say, I don't entirely understand how works, and the death of Jesus, and how those things work in order to get me into the God. I every day, but I don't entirely understand how it works. And after a passage read by Michelle, great passage, but a very difficult passage, mixed wars, going from place to place, after you that here you might be how it got a got a class at Fuller Seminary. It was called the Cross in the New Testament. It's what we call atonement theology. Atonement theology. How does the death of Jesus come to apply to beings? How does that work? And at the very heart of it, there is a bit of a mystery in the world. God, the Jesus to bear on my life. And again, whether or not we can explain it, whether or not you can tell me how a catalytic converter works, or even walk me through the supply chain at Costco, it does not it's not true. It does, it does work. One of the things that we want to do today is we want to explore this idea as the author of Hebrews is reflecting on this idea that the death of Jesus to on my human condition, how does he explain it? How, what metaphors does he use? What language does he use? And in chapter, chapter, chapter 9, is one of the most passages in the book of Hebrews to talk about that particular issue. How does the death of Jesus come to bear on my life, on my human condition, on my sins? But what I want you to understand, even as we go into, like, you'll, we'll probably, you'll, like, I, again, whale watching, like, where did Pastor Craig go? He went down, like, in the weeds. That, this even if you don't understand, not always like, I understand, does not mean that it doesn't understand because there's a lot of things about it. So what I'm going to do this morning is rather than walk verse by verse through the passage, what I want to do is I want to pull out really four key terms or verbs 
or nouns and verbs together that talk about what the death of Jesus is and what it accomplishes and talk about the movement that each one implies, that salvation is a movement from one place to another, like from to life. Like, other Hebrews has really these four ways that he wants to talk about the death of Jesus. So look at, to begin in our passage, let's look at the last verse of our passage. Look at 9.22, and that will be our jumping off place for this morning. You guys with me on this one? Again, I, hopefully by the end of this morning, this is what I want us to do. By the end of this morning, I want us to kind of identify how is it that I have thought about my life of faith in Jesus? Like, how have I thought about Jesus' death applying to me? What does that mean? How, what are the dominant ways that I've thought about that in my lifetime? But also to recognize that there might be some other metaphors that are being used in Scripture that might continue to resonate with me, that might continue to inform me about the scope of my salvation in Jesus. There's a good chance that when you came to faith, there was one metaphor or one idea about what happened with Jesus on the cross and your faith and how that all works together. And that has sustained you, and that's a wonderful thing. That's wonderful. That's an entry point. But the authors of the New Testament use multiple metaphors and ideas about how the death of Jesus comes to bear on us. And the author of Hebrews has a very specific way of doing that. So this is what we have, 922. This is what it says. It says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so the relationship between the blood of Jesus, which is a shorthand way of saying the suffering and death of Jesus. So how does the suffering and death of Jesus, the blood of Jesus, and the forgiveness of sins and the benefits of salvation, how do they come to bear in my life and in your life? All right, so we have a, a number of terms, and in your notes, there's a number of terms on there. So here's our first one, and that is that the blood of Jesus, first and foremost, um, the blood of Jesus cleanses or purifies us. Look at 9.13, 9.13. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And so this first idea, this first metaphor, this first thing that the blood of Jesus accomplishes is what the author of Hebrews calls purification or cleansing. And the idea of cleansing, we actually, the, the, term, the verb is um, katharizo, it's katharismos, we get the word cathartic, if something is cathartic, it cleanses you. Like it's a, it's a purging of what is inside. If we say, if you, if you cry it out, you say it's cathartic, you get it out of you. And so this idea of, of cleansing, of purification, is this idea of going from a state, from a state of impurity or defilement or simply being dirty or stained. Goes from being dirty or stained to a state of being clean or pure. The state of being dirty or stained to being clean or pure. Now in your house, you probably have a shrine to Katharizo. You have some kind of a shrine 
towards purification. You have some kind of place in your house that is dedicated to cleansing. And what is it? It's the laundry room. The laundry room is your shrine of purification. And you have all of the instruments that you need. You have, you have your laundry detergent, but if your laundry detergent doesn't get it done, you might have, like in ours, you might have a, a little shout or a little spray and wash. Anyone else? Roll call on, on stain removers? Little oxy. Little oxy. Anybody? Yeah? Maybe a little vinegar. You got a little vinegar on the shelf? You got a little baking soda, right? If you got a really stubborn stain, maybe a little Dawn. Am, am I like, come on, everybody. All right. You have, and again, it's, it's like a little shrine. I have a stain. I need to get it out, and it's stubborn. Like, you can ask my wife. She's awesome at this kind of stuff, and she has a whole process. Like, if it's time to really go after a stain, like, all right, there's clothes soaking, they're drying, they're air drying. Don't put it in the dryer because you don't want to bake that sucker in, right? You need what it takes. You've got a shrine. You have something dedicated to purification in your house. And the very first thing in Hebrews it says that Jesus accomplished is that in Hebrews 1.3, it talks about who Jesus is, and then it says, after making purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And it's interesting, in the book of Hebrews, one of the main things that it says that Jesus does is he takes people from a state of defilement or a state of dirtiness or a state of being stained to a state of being cleansed and purified. No stain. The stain came out because of Jesus. And again, I don't know exactly how this works because it's by blood, and you're like, blood stains. But, but in this case, the blood purifies. It's a very interesting dichotomy in the book of Hebrews and in the ancient world. Purification in the Old Testament often meant washing and waiting for a period before you go into the presence of God. They called it mikvah baths, and you would just cleanse yourself. But if there was really bad sin or something was significant, you might do regular animal sacrifices. And once a year, the high priest would go into the very most sacred place, the Holy of Holies, and offer the blood on the Day of Atonement to, make, to cleanse the sins of all the people. And Jesus' cleansing is different from the laundry cleansing or even what the high priests of the Old Testament did. Look at 9.13. It says, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, that is, in the Old Testament, when the high priest went in to, to purify, what, off, what he offered was an external cleansing, the purification of the, of the flesh. But listen to what Jesus does. In 9.14, how much more... Will the blood of Messiah, of Christ, of Jesus, who offers himself without blemish through the eternal spirit, how much more will he purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And this idea that the word conscience implies this inner part, that the blood of Jesus doesn't just cleanse us from external stain, the blood of Jesus cleanses us on the inside. I think it's interesting in Exodus chapter 22, when Moses um, inaugurates the covenant, God says, hey, sprinkle all the stuff, cleanse it with blood, 
And so he takes the, the branches, as it says in this, and he sprinkles and he cleanses everything with blood. But then it says he, he cleanses the people in Exodus 20, or in, in all the instruments in Exodus 22. But then he takes the blood in this big basin and he sprinkles it all over the people. And it's external. But when Jesus inaugurates the new covenant, we, pra- we, we, we celebrate this every month, at the, every month at the Lord's Supper, when he says, this is the blood of the covenant which is for you, take and drink. He doesn't say take the blood of the covenant, take the wine and splash it all over you. And the imp- implication is probably that, look, you are, the blood of the covenant is now not making a, a it's not an external covenant This is going to be an internal work, and we symbolically participate when we practice the Lord's Supper, we remember the new covenant, that it is not this external on-the-flesh cleansing, but what the blood of Jesus accomplishes is an internal work of cleansing our most inner being. And so whatever stain we might have in our lives from sin that we have committed or from sin that someone else has perpetrated on us. The author of Hebrews says, how much more will the work of Jesus cleanse that? It is not an external. The blood of Jesus goes inside and does a work within And so the language of cleansing by the blood of Jesus means that there is a movement from the internal stain of sin. We go from a state of being internally stained by the fallen world and by our own sin, but by the blood of Jesus, we go to an internal state of being cleansed and purified from our sin. After making purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of majesty. And so that's the first movement that we see in this passage. What does the blood of Jesus accomplish if there is a stain, and there is? The blood of Jesus will cleanse that stain. So that's the first first, uh, piece of language that the author uses, the first metaphor, the first movement of the salvation and what the atonement accomplishes in Hebrews. Here's the second one. Second one, look at 9.13. 9.13. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh. And the second movement, the second language is this language of sanctification. Now in your notes, it says set apart for the presence of God. And so we have to walk a little bit to see this, idea, this word sanctify. The word sanctify means to make holy. So there's actually um, a number, the verb hagiadzo in Greek means to set apart, to set apart. Saints are hagioi, they are set apart ones. And if something is set apart, it is holy. And so this idea of being made holy, being sanctified is the same thing as being made holy, is the same thing as being set apart. And the idea of being set apart is being set apart for the presence of God. You're like, okay, this is, so you're like, it's like triple interpretation here that we've got to, the word sanctify means making something holy. You're like, 
great, I don't know what that means. Like, we don't. We just, we hear these words oftentimes, do we not, in our Sunday school classes and in the Christianese of our lives, and sometimes we just need some, something to kind of set this into normal, just what does this mean to make something holy? And it basically means to set something apart, make something fit to set apart and to be brought into the presence of God. Now, the opposite of being set apart is being common, normal, everyday use. But being holy is something special set apart for the presence of God. We don't have many examples. I, honestly, we don't have many examples because we, the, the, the barrier between what is holy and what is common is oftentimes really broken down in our society. We have very few places where we think, oh, I've got to get dressed up for that, or I've got to, only certain people can go in there. As I was trying to think of an example for this, you're going to have to forgive me ahead of time. The first thing that came to mind for me was flip-flops. Now, hang on. If you're a Southern California native, there is a chance that when summer rolls around, you have two pairs of flip-flops. You got your flip-flops that you wear to the pool, to the beach, everyday use, flip-flops in the summertime. But then you've got, and you guys know you have them, you got your nice flip-flops. You got your flip-flops that you wear out at night. Like if you want to really look good, you got your second pair of flip-flops. Come on, everybody. You got your normal, you got your regular flip-flops, and you got your holy flip-flops. I know it's a horrible example, okay? But we, you know you got, you got things that are set apart special, and you don't want to get those dirty. Don't wear those at the beach. I got to wear those tonight, right? Like, I need my two sets of flip-flops. Now, probably the one place, here's the one place that I do think we might understand the idea of holiness, okay? Um, is, this, is the idea of um, like an operating room. And, and again, you guys have probably never seen this. Some of you guys have some of your industries deal with operating rooms. But you can't just take anything into an operating room right? You got people and they're scrubbing up and they, like they, and they walk in, they're like this, you know, like I can't, like, oh, okay, and then, and if they get dirty, like, oh, I touched the wrong thing, I got to go back out, and I got you know, to, so the idea that you, you have to have only certain things that are set apart that make it into the presence of that room, right? That, that's probably the closest thing that we have in our society in kind of a secular society where we might understand the idea that not just anything can go into that room. It has to be cleansed or set apart or made ready to go into that room. And when you have, like, you're like, that, I don't know about that. You're like, oh, look, if you have a surgeon who's, like, lax on that kind of stuff, like, come talk to me. We'll find another plan for you, right? Okay, you want to have someone who knows what is ready to go into that room. So the language of being sanctified by the blood of Jesus is that there's a movement that the blood of Jesus accomplishes not only cleansing, but this idea of being common. You go from being common, ordinary, or even defiled or profane is another way of thinking about it, that oftentimes we think there's some behaviors that are not fit for certain places, right? And so this idea of going from common behavior, common language, to the idea of being set apart for the service and usage of God. And what the author of Hebrews says is that the blood of Jesus not only cleanses you, 
but it sets you apart. And it makes you ready and enabled to go into the presence of God. Like a surgeon would be able to go into an operating room. That you've been made ready to go into the presence of God. And that the blood of Jesus accomplishes that with certainty. So you've been purified. You've been cleansed. You've also been sanctified. You've been made holy. You've been set apart. The third thing, the third term that occurs in this passage is that the blood of Jesus and the death of Jesus redeem. Redeem. Again, a lot of this is, this is the Christianese. You're like, I, I've heard these terms all the time. Like, what does it mean to redeem? Where does that come from? And the first two terms, the first two terms um, are from the language of priests and sacrifices and the cultic temple tabernacle worship. Making holy and purifying, that's all language from the temple. This, this term redeem, redemption, is not language of the priests. This is the language of the marketplace. Redemption is something that happens in the marketplace. And not everything is redeemed in the marketplace. What's redeemed in the marketplace most, most significantly are that slaves are redeemed in the marketplace. Simply purchasing something is sort of like a redemption, but purchasing a person is what redemption is talking about here. Look at 9.15. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So redemption is a commercial term, and it comes from the marketplace. And, and, and I, it might sound a little, just to put this in perspective, it comes from the human trafficking marketplace. It implies that something goes from slavery through some sort of transaction or activity, and that person that was once in slavery is now set free. It implies that someone or something has the power over your life, like a slave, or someone who's being trafficked. Power over your life, over what you do, over where you go. Something is trafficking you. Someone is trafficking you. Someone has a claim over you. And it says that this death that has occurred redeems. For slaves in the ancient world, there were a few ways that you could be freed. To, to, to tease this analogy out, as the author of Hebrews is doing. If you were a slave, one way that you could be freed is someone shows up and someone pays the price to purchase you. And then they don't put, the, they don't put you in their service, they set you free. That would be the idea of redemption. That's one way, a purchase price. Oftentimes when we hear the idea that Jesus paid the price, that's the language of redemption. That's marketplace language. Another way that this could happen is through some way or another you get attached to a certain household. You have in the Old Testament this idea that if you had a kinsman, they could come and redeem you. They could take you back into their family simply be by the rights of blood. They could come and be the kinsman redeemer. That's another way. Another way that this could happen, and this happens more often than not in the Old, uh, in the Old Testament or in the ancient world, is that 
you would have a kingdom and they would have a bunch of slaves and you would have another warring kingdom come and conquer that kingdom and they come in and they kick down the door and they beat the army and everybody who's in prison or is enslaved by that kingdom, they let go. It's not that they pay a price. They simply come and kick down the door, Liam Neeson style, and say, I have a particular set of skills. Come on, everybody. All right? It's like the... the Look, the movie, the movie franchise Taken is all about the image of redemption. It's all about someone was stolen and taken by Albanian human traffickers of some kind, right? And that Liam Neeson is going to show up and boom, 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 you know, and he's going to take him out with vengeance. Like that's, the, that's where maybe the biblical analogy breaks down a little bit. Okay. But the idea that he comes in and he kicks down the door and he takes what belongs to him. That is the image of redemption. Now, whether that term could mean any of those things, but in the Bible, what, there are times where it talks about Jesus purchases a people for himself, or there are times where Jesus goes in and he does war against the devil who lays claim to you. But this, I think this is a rich metaphor when you think about the idea that, that there's an enemy who wants to traffic you and enslave you. And that Jesus will come in with power and kick down the door and take what belongs to him. But this kind of redemption, it's not like the Liam Neeson. You don't have to have taken one, taken two, and taken three. You would think that the Albanians would figure it out. Don't mess with this. Anyway, but the idea, listen to what it says. In 912, he entered, he didn't do this, that this is not an over and over redemption. He says, he has entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. This is not a redemption that can go away. This means that however far you fall, Jesus will come and kick the door down, wherever you are. And that you can't lose this redemption. You will not lose his interest in saving you. It is an eternal redemption. You have been cleansed. You have been set apart. And you have been redeemed. Your father has searched for you. has offered the payment price for you, has kicked down the door for you, is your rightful family, and has now come to lay claim to what belongs to him. And he has done it through his son, Jesus, and the death of Jesus. And so what does the death of Jesus, the blood of Jesus accomplish? We've talked about three so far. There's been cleansing. And you go from a state of defilement, of stain, to being cleansed, that you've been set apart, you've been made holy, that you've gone from a state of being common, being regular, being profane, to being set apart for the presence of God, like a, like a fine instrument brought into a surgical room. And you've been redeemed. You've been lost, enslaved. Someone else has had power over you, and Jesus has come to take what belongs to him. The last term. And maybe the term that ties this all together, and maybe this is the reason why this term is oftentimes how we view 
our relationship with God and being made right in a relationship with God. Uh, it is the language of forgiveness. The language of forgiveness. 922, indeed, under the law, this is where we began, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Now, I, you hear the word forgiveness, and probably it brings up a number of images in your own mind about, your, about sins and whatnot. Um, one of the things about the term forgiveness, forgiveness is, is it, it, it kind of it has a nice semantic range to it, which means the various meanings that this word can have. And one of the word, one of the uh, kind of the base concepts of forgiveness is the idea of release. As a matter of fact, in this passage, if you're reading the ESV, it says where it's if I can find this nine twenty two. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Actually, in Greek, it the words. Without blood, there is And what it could, really what it says is, there is no blood, there is no release. There is no release, there is no forgiveness. Now, when the, when the term, the reason why they, they add that in there is because whenever the term is there, it pretty much implies of sins. Every that there is forgiveness, there's the, 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 the release of sins. Forgiveness is also the term released. Without the shedding of blood, no release. And under the old covenant that we talked about last week when Jesus makes a new covenant in Jeremiah 31, the author of Hebrews quotes that, but under the old covenant, there was, if you were to break the covenant, if you were to sin under the covenant, then you would have the curse of the covenant. That you were bound by the curse of the covenant. If you were to sin, and you were to break the covenant, that you would be bound under the curse of the old covenant, which would mean death or separation. And the term forgiveness implies that under this new covenant, there is a release from the curse and obligations of breaking the covenant under the old covenant. When Hebrews quotes the passage about God inaugurating a new covenant from Jeremiah 31, in, in Hebrews 8.12, he says, he, he quotes this, he says, in Jeremiah 31, it says, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. And that's different from the old covenant. You were under obligation, you were bound. You were bound under the curses of the covenant. But I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. How is it that God is able to not remember our sins? According to the book of Hebrews, he does this by means of the blood of Jesus. I think in a couple ways. One, he uses that blood as the blood to inaugurate the new covenant. That when you make the new covenant, like in Exodus, when Moses goes up on the hill and he makes the covenant, he uses the blood of the covenant. And then when Jesus, when he sheds his own blood, he uses his own blood as the blood of the new covenant. And then when we practice the Lord's Supper, we remember the blood of Jesus as the blood of the covenant. But the second way that his blood is used in this way is his blood is the new blood for the day of atonement. 
His blood is the new blood of the high priest who offers a sacrifice and brings it into the holy place. But Jesus does not offer a sacrifice and animal sacrifices. He's not only the high priest, he's also the sacrifice. And he takes blood into the and he that as a piece of the old covenant. He inaugurates this new covenant release of sins people from sin both by cleansing their hearts internally from its taint condemnation that comes from sin god remembers their sins no more and so we have this fourth movement being bound to the covenant being bound to those of the curse of obedience being released and your sins forgotten when we think about the forgiveness of sins we should think about being released and our sins being forgotten now these are these are this language there's these are four metaphors that the that the author of hebrews uses and I, these are one metaphors, are really helpful metaphors. They don't all translate day and age as all my my, you know, like we don't have, we don't even oftentimes think of the shedding of blood, animal sacrifices. Some of these things we have to kind of go culturally and over time over a different continent to figure out how these particular things. But here's the thing. Hebrews uses these metaphors to describe the death of Jesus and salvation. And acknowledging the supremacy of Jesus, putting your faith in Jesus, means that you have been cleansed. You've gone from the internal stain of sin, internal cleansing and purification. You've been set apart from being common to being brought into the presence of God for the service and usage of God. You've been redeemed from being enslaved and entrapped to being freed and to live in freedom and you have been forgiven from being bound to the consequences and curse of disobedience to being released and you're seeing it. And I, I think the good thing in the author writing these to you, one of those might have resonated, and even right now, even as you hear this, there might be one of those that really resonates I mean, maybe it's the idea of, of being stained. I think this is one of the things that, there are things that happen to us in our lives that we feel shame that we don't know how to get rid of, that there's stain on us, that there's taint on us, and we don't know how to get that off. And sometimes we live our lives like not knowing how to go about understanding that God would actually love me. And we need to let an image like that get deep into our soul and know that I have been cleansed and that there's nothing I've done or nothing that has been done to me that can taint me so that God would discard me. Like, that's an important thing. Like, one of these, one or more of these images or metaphors resonate more with you. Or might have been a metaphor that has brought you, that kind of cut through your disbelief. At like, when you heard the gospel, there was some kind of story of salvation that cut through whatever it was that your hard heart had at the time. And God made it through that heart by some narrative. And it might not have been one of these. 
It might have been something more like, hey, there's guilt and you could be made righteous. That's the language of justification. Or it might have been, you're on the path to death. And what God offers is new life. That's the language of new life. It might have been something like, you're in darkness and you're going to light. That's the language of revelation. It might be that you are defeated and you need victory in Jesus or you're offered victory. Like all of these things are different metaphors and you could preach the gospel from any of these stories. This is all the language of the Bible. There's no one way. If you're going to talk about the death, you have to say this. Read the different authors. They all say it in a different way. The author of Hebrews just simply lands in this particular way. But like the Apostle Paul, he loves the image that you were enemies of God. And now God, while you were an enemy, has come and reconciled you and made you his friend. If I, and again, this sounds sacrilegious. Hebrews doesn't use that terminology. Hebrews doesn't use that metaphor, but that's a real metaphor, and the Apostle Paul uses that. And what I want to say about this is there's probably a more dominant way that you have heard the language of your salvation or what the death of Jesus has accomplished. And that's great. I would imagine in here there are various ways and various ways of explaining the death of Jesus that have penetrated each heart in here. And what our job is what our job is, is not only to let these metaphors sink deep into our own heart, but our job is to tell that story to a lost world. And what we need to understand when we tell that story to a lost world, there's no one metaphor that we are bound to, to do that with. It's like clubs in a golf bag, everybody. Look, I love my driver. I love my driver. I love hitting the ball as hard as I possibly can. Anybody else out there? I love that. I just, when, whenever I have a chance to use my driver, I love to use my driver. I have to find my ball later, right? I love to use my driver. But if I used my driver on every shot on the golf course, what would that be like? I mean, I'd still score the same way I do normally. But no, there's different clubs. Like if I'm only 150 yards out, I'm not gonna use my driver. I might use my seven or eight iron, right? Because it's, it's, it's got a little more touch to it. Or if I'm right by the green, I'm not going to use a seven or eight iron. I'm going to use a pitching wedge. If I'm in the sand trap, which I oftentimes am, right, I'll use the sand wedge to get out. If I'm on the green, I use a putter. Look, the images of the death of Jesus and what it accomplishes, whoever you're talking to, get the one that they need to hear. There's plenty. And I, I know that there's some people, there are some people out there that would say, if you're going to preach the gospel, you have to say this, and you have to say this, and you have to say this. And I'm like, that's not what the New Testament does. The New Testament, in many ways, customizes the gospel message to the need of its hearer. Because it is the kindness of God that leads people to repentance. Knowing the people, even God knowing you, even God bringing you here this morning, you might have needed to hear that you have been cleansed. Or you might have needed to know that you have an enemy out there who wants to traffic you. 
make you do what he wants you to do, take you to places where he wants to go. But Jesus has come in and kicked down the door and said, you belong to me, I will take you, you belong here. Like, I don't know, you might need to hear that. And there might be other people who need to hear that. And there might be certain people that you can reach because of your story and what resonates with you. And there might be other people that other people can reach because of what resonates with them. This is the body of Christ. It is not one monolithic message. The author of Hebrews doesn't even just use one metaphor. He uses four different metaphors. And beyond that, we didn't even talk about the idea of like the, a, a will and the death of Jesus accomplishing the, like dispensing the will. Like we didn't even talk about that. There's so many different things. From lost to found, from far off to near, from darkness to light, from death to life, from guilty to righteous, from defeated to victorious, from enemies to friendship, from objects of God's wrath to subjects of God's love. Pick one. And preach the gospel. But before you do that, let it just sink deeply into your own heart. Man, let's, let's have the worship team come on up. As we just take a second, just to reflect. Just to reflect. And there's probably one of these images that just grounds you on the hardest day. I just, as you close your eyes, you just think about, like, what is, what is the one metaphor that you continue to go back to that just grounds you in the security of your salvation? Maybe it's forgiveness. Maybe it's that you have been cleansed, and that's definitive. Maybe it's that God has found you and rescued you and redeemed you. Maybe it is that you live in new life and you're thriving in new life. Whatever it is, I just want you to call it to mind and I just want you to thank God for that story, that metaphor, that narrative. He has used that club in the bag to remind you of your salvation. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Jesus for accomplishing that. And at the same time, just to take a second and just to ask God, like, God, what, what else do I, what other narrative, what other thing might you have to impress on my heart that might sustain me? Maybe it's the idea of being set apart for service. Maybe it's you come to, fat to find me. Maybe it's that I once was in darkness and you have illumined my life. One of these resonates. And I just, this morning, just as we continue to just the depth of our understanding of what you have accomplished for us, Father, we ask that you would just drill that deep into our soul so that we might have confidence when we doubt. And we might have the tools to offer hope to a lost world. We love you. We thank you for the salvation that you have accomplished through your son, Jesus. Jesus, thank you. You have suffered and bled on my behalf, on our behalf. 
You brought us near. You brought us into the inner chamber. We offer ourselves in gratitude to you. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand together and sing this. Into 
you go. Love it. Hey, if you're new to our community here at Taft, I'd love to get a chance to connect with you. If you text Taft Connect, no spaces, uh, to 94,000, uh, I'll get an email. I'm a little behind right now, so if you put one in, I apologize. A little another self-report there. That's okay. Uh, but I'd love to get a, a chance to connect with you, hear a little bit of your story, tell a little bit of the story of our church, and see how you can get involved. So that's an, one way to do that. Another thing is next Saturday, we've got a men's breakfast that's happening here in the community center at 8 a.m. You can sign up out on the patio. Patio, the plat, what do we call that now? The courtyard, yeah. Thank you, Daryl. I pre- you want, Daryl, I need your help up here. Um, the courtyard, you can sign up out there on the courtyard. Great time, good chance to be with our guys and just a chance to have some time with the men. Um, really good. We as men, look, I know when times get tough, I tend to isolate. Men kind of do that. I'm just saying this is a great chance to get together and not isolate. So do that. That's good. I don't want to call you out or anything like that, but that's our men's, yeah. Anyway, all right, okay. Also, Saturday, March 16th, we have a women's meal prep. We have this wonderful thing in our, we have a freezer that's in our community center. And if there's ever anybody that just needs a meal or is a little bit having a hard time, needs a little help, a little meal, a little something, we have a bunch of frozen meals in there, but that doesn't just happen by little elves doing all that. We have great women who put that all together. So if you bring 10 bucks and you, it'll pay for a lot of the ingredients and you can come have some great time with some of the ladies at our church preparing these meals and uh, putting them in the freezer for the times when people will need them. So even right now, like if you know of somebody who just needs maybe a little extra, a little dinner, a little something, like you're free to go into that freezer and take what you need. That's what it's there for. There's no, it's not like you have to be sanctified to get into that freezer, right? You are able to go. Like that is, member or not, you, <laughs> it doesn't matter. That's there because it meets needs in our community. We want that freezer. We want to do that, this thing more often. Like we want that freezer to empty quick and we want to refill it because we want all these things to go out. Those meals belong to the Lord. They need to be in the Lord's service out of that freezer. So do that. So a charge to you all. All right, as we go from this place today, Let's hear the benediction from the book of Hebrews. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, who is the great shepherd of the sheep, he's done that by the blood of the eternal covenant. May that God equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Go in God's grace today. Have a great day.